Today on episode number 318 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Anissa Ramirez talks about her new book, The Alchemy of Us. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. It's been five years since I had the honor of talking to Dr. Anissa Ramirez. She's an award-winning scientist and science communicator who's passionate about getting the general public excited about science. And I have a feeling that she's about to get you excited about science with the interview that you're about to hear. As a graduate of Brown University, she earned her doctorate in materials science and engineering from Stanford. Dr. Ramirez started her career as a scientist at Bell Laboratory in Murray Hill, New Jersey, and later worked as an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Yale. She authored the books The Alchemy of Us and Save Our Science and co-authored Newton's Football. She's written for Forbes, Time, The Atlantic, Scientific American, American Scientist, and Science, and has explained science headlines on CBS, CNN, NPR, ESPN, and PBS. Anissa, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Oh, thank you so much. I love hearing about your childhood, and you have such vivid memories of it. And of course, I have kids that are six and eight, and some of the stories you tell about your childhood are from when you were around (laughs) those ages. I want to know, what are some of the questions that you remember having about the world when you were a child? I really wanted to know how things work in in my home. So any appliance was under my investigation. And I'm really glad that my parents knew that I wasn't being malicious when I was taking stuff apart, that I just really didn't know. I wanted to know what was inside. How did it work? So I I was one of those kids who took things apart. I wasn't allowed to touch the toaster, (laughs) but any other little thing that, you know, if there were a couple of screws and I can take it apart, I was certainly allowed to to do so. And uh, I just enjoyed that. And one of my favorite memories is when my father would come home, I was so excited to see him, but I was actually more excited because what he was carrying was a briefcase full of tools. He worked at IBM and repaired computers, and so I was happy to see that briefcase a little bit more than I was happy to see him because I wanted to get busy taking stuff apart with them. You know, there's always those funny videos of kids where they put something in front of them like a rotary phone, and they don't understand what it is and all of that. Do you have any thoughts around the simplicity of how things are designed today, but also how some of that's hidden away versus when you were younger and you actually could take things apart and see more of the mechanisms that made them work. Do you think that contributes at all to kids maybe not being as curious? And they're so they're so full of curiosity anyway, but what do you think about in terms of design? Well, I was fortunate. I was in that age where things were still almost understandable to the general public. Today, we're making things that are beyond our understanding. And so I do think it would be neat to have a class where you just get old parts, go to eBay, order some old parts that are broken. People spread them all out, put a paper towel on the table to protect it, and then start taking stuff apart and start figuring out, oh, what does this part do? And if you can't figure it out, go on Wikipedia. Oh, what does this do? I don't know. It seems like it's linked to this. 
this is such a wonderful way to learn about the world. And in mechanical engineering, which is not my field, but it's so beautiful and so clever. And it's, it's a wonderful framework to understand how the world works. I have a confession to make to you, and I feel like I can do this now. <laughs> We're friends. <laughs> when I first heard, speaking of your field, your discipline, I didn't know what it was. And I felt so ashamed. It was one of those imposter syndrome things where I was like, see, this whole time I should never have had a podcast. I should know these no, things. But no, it no, turns no. out from reading your book, you say that it's actually not a usual field, that that you know, it's not one that people know about as much. So would you share about it now that I can admit that I didn't know what it was? Sure. Well, we're definitely friends. And, and look, I, I compare my field of material science to my home state of New Jersey. New Jersey and material science have been overshadowed by their neighbors. Uh, for New Jersey, that's Philadelphia and New York. And for material science, it's chemistry and physics. Material science is, sits where those two overlap. It's interested in how atoms bond. So that's the chemistry part. And then it translates that information into how a material will behave in different situations. And so that's the physics part. So you're not alone in not understanding this field. My mom doesn't know what this field is. And in fact, what she just says is I'm a writer. It makes it easier. But yeah, it's, it's a little known field, but I spent time talking about it in my book, The Alchemy of Us, so that people can understand the impact of this little known field to their everyday lives. In your book, you also talk about a time in your education that you remember where that same curiosity that was so prevalent in your childhood started to fade a bit. Would you talk about that experience in school, what you remember about learning not being as fun as generating of curiosity? Sure. Well, I was one of those kids that loved science from a very early age. And what got me turned on to science was actually television. I had a lot of favorite shows back then, such as Bionic Woman, Six Million Dollar Man, and Star Trek, of course, with Spock, only that one. I didn't like the other ones. But the show that really turned me on was a show called 321 Contact. And in it was a little African-American girl solving problems. And when I saw her, I saw my reflection. That show gave me permission to geek out about science. And I, I was very blessed because I had fantastic teachers who didn't necessarily look like me, but they reflected me too because they had a love for science. And I had that love all the way through high school. But when I got to college, that love for science was under attack particularly by those introductory weed-out courses. I was studying engineering, and it seemed almost as if the professors were thrilled by this notion when they would tell us on the first day, look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here. And they were right. The next semester, half of us were gone. And then the next semester, they would say the same thing. Look to your left, look to your right, one of you won't be here. And again, they were right. And it seemed like they had some honor in eliminating all these people who, like myself, were excited about science wanted to be scientists or wanted to understand the world through that lens and just crushed their dreams. So that was the reason why I actually many, many years later wrote this book so that other people who may have had a bad journey through science could now have a better one. I promised that when I finished my degrees, I said, I'm going to make it easier for other people. And so that was the impetus for my book. Your story reminds me a little bit of the hashtag black in the ivory or ivories. Actually, I think it's plural. And, you know, a lot of people of color sharing about their experiences that this same look to your left, look to your right doesn't end at the college experience as a student, but is really persisting in terms of people who we want to attract and retain in this field, but mm -hmm. who I suspect maybe aren't as boldly having people say, look to your left and look to your right, but certainly the systems and the structures are set up that way to be discriminatory. Oh, right. I mean, it doesn't have to be overt. It could be covert. 
you know, you go into a meeting. I remember my first day when I was a professor at Yale. So this is my first day, first faculty meeting. And it's obvious I'm new because I'm the only African-American woman and no one introduced me. And I think the second meeting I said, hey, by the way, I'm Anissa Ramirez and, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm in mechanical engineering department. But what a way to not make a person feel welcome. And that's simple. But there's little things. I mean, it's, it's what I call death by a thousand cuts. It's just these little things that add up and eventually they just completely dispirit a person. Yeah, I fortunately, my organization has changed so much in the 16 years that I've been there. But one of oh, my first great. faculty meetings, I was the only woman in a small group discussion and, of course, was asked to take notes for everyone. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, I was in the mechanical engineering department and would go to a faculty event, maybe a meal or, you know, wine and cheese. And I would be introduced to someone and like, oh, this is Anissa. She's from the mechanical engineering department. And one person said, oh, I really love the HVAC in my my building, you know, mm. uh, the air conditioning. I yeah. said, that's wonderful. I'm not in charge of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you you mm. talked about this weeding out, which mm-hmm. I am so glad is now more and more institutions are feeling shame around their history. Not enough, but more. Right. Uh, what were some other systems, practices that held back people who looked like you in terms of thriving in their academic experience? It's just the assumption that this student of color is not going to do well and doesn't belong here. And so if you have that assumption, a student who is non-black, you give the benefit of the doubt. Oh, he or she had a bad day or, you know, you just you just give them a second chance. But if you believe that a person is you know, affirmative action and they don't belong here. Soon as they make any kind of mess up, even if it isn't a mess up, you're like, aha, I was right. You don't belong here. So if you're looking at the world through that lens, everything will fit that lens. And so people who are on the other side of that lens, they feel that and they start to believe that, oh, I don't belong here. If you don't see your reflection, if you're not getting reminded that people think that you're talented, you start to believe the narrative that's coming at you. So those are the kinds of things that I experienced. And I can't think of a particular one. I mean, there was something at each stage in my progression, you know, even through my doctorate. When I got to Bell Laboratories, things got a little easier. And that was because Bell Laboratories had a history of many African-American scientists, very, very prominent scientists there. So that proof of principle that a person of color could be excellent, I didn't need to do that. It was already, it was already done. But when I went to the academy, uh, then I felt like I was set back many, many decades and was having to fight old, old fights again to prove my worthiness. And ultimately, it, it didn't seem like it was, a, it was the best fit. In The Alchemy of Us, you share the story of your college professor at Brown who said something to you that began to rekindle this curiosity from your childhood. Would you share about that professor and how he was able to do that? Sure. So, I had known I wanted to be a scientist for a very, very long time. And when I got to college, I had to take some prerequisite courses, one of them being material science. And uh, when I signed up for the course, I just anticipated that this was going to be a very boring class uh, because all of my classmates thought this was going to be boring because that's what prerequisites are. But Professor L. Ben Friend said on the first day, the reason why we don't fall through the floor, the reason why my sweater is blue, and the reason why the lights work all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can understand how they do that, you can get them to do new things. Now, when he said this, I momentarily stopped listening to him, which I don't recommend. You should always listen to your professor. But I stopped listening to him because I started looking at everything in the lecture hall with a new, fresh pair of eyes. 
the pencil in my hand was able to make a mark because carbon atoms slid past each other. And my shoes, they were flexible because the molecules are shaped like springs, which brought comfort to my feet. And my glasses, they allowed my eyes to see because they bent light to my distant retinas. This guy was telling me something that made the whole world make sense to me. And it was that moment that I decided that material science was the way that I wanted to understand the world. And that's what put me on the path to becoming a material scientist. This story is so moving for me to hear you say out loud, because of course I read your words, but just to think about as teachers that we have that capacity. And in my experience, it's not, <laughs> it's not like I've thought these things out very much in advance. It's always in the unexpected where mm. I'm able to say something that a student will tell me years later on that they're thinking about. And I'm going, I don't even remember saying that, you know, right, just, right. just that's a, such a, such a profound honor that people let us into their world like that. And it's just, anyway, I just wanted to thank you for sharing about that and, and just how he was able to put a whole new lens on. He just changed my life. I, I've reached out to him and I, I, sent, I told him to pick up a copy of the book. I said, look on page so-and-so because you're mentioned. And professors, teachers too, they have a profound impact on people's lives. This vocation is one of the most important vocations out there. And when I was at when I was at Yale, I had a bunch of students uh, on graduation day who wanted to take a picture with me and I didn't know them. And they said, you know what, just knowing you were around mm. made life better. That's the impact of a professor or a teacher. So as much as work is hard and you don't feel valued, we, we have to remember that that's what we're about doing. We're about touching the future by encouraging children to to be more than what's in front of them. And uh, I can't think of anything more important than that. I did not expect that Madonna was going to show up in your book. What does Madonna have to do with your interest in science? Well, who didn't have a Madonna album in, uh, from my generation? <laughs> but Madonna had this great song where she was called the Material Girl. And, well, I'm a material scientist. I'm a material girl. In fact, a lot of it's material scientists were also a little corny. So we would have meetings and we would play that song, Material Girl by Madonna. But... The reason why I talk about her is first, I'm trying to show that the book, the book is approachable. Here is this, I'm not a stuffy person. I want to share with you that I can relate to culture, even though this is old culture. But material, uh, material Girl says we're living in a material world and I'm a material girl. And what I try and show in The Alchemy of Us is that we do live in a material world, but we're also in a dance with these materials. We shape them and they in turn shape us. So Madonna was one of the linchpins, one of the ways that I tried to show that point. When you think back to your early process in writing The Alchemy of Us, is there a person or one of the inventions that you just instantly were like, yes, this has to be in there. There's no doubt about it. Right. And, and of course, just a little preview, I'm about to ask you what surprises came out after, you know, as you started to work on it. But, but what, what was a person or an invention where you're like, as this meaning of this book starts to emerge, this has to be in there? Well, the first person you meet in the book is Ruth Belville. Mm -hmm. Ruth Belville had the extraordinary position where she sold time. Yeah, I said that right. In the 19th century, this woman in England would go around to London with her watch, which she had certified to the precise time from going to the Royal Observatory. And she would show her watch to different businesses, such as factories and newspapers and train stations, because they needed to know the exact time, but they didn't have the luxury to go into to the Royal Observatory to get it. And so that was Ruth's business. Now, when I discovered her, I was working on the chapter, the first chapter, which is about clocks and how they changed life 
you, you, you learn about how our sleep changed in that chapter, but I was still looking for a way to convey to people how obsessed we became with time. So I'm reading some really old and might I say dry books about timekeeping. And in one book, midway through, about halfway through the page, I see this one sentence that says, in the 19th century, there was a woman who sold time. And that stopped me in my tracks. I was mm. like, who is this? <laughs> you know, what? Exactly. <laughs> I said that loudly and I'm in a library and you can, you can imagine the response that I got. <laughs> but I decided I wanted to investigate who that person was. And I was so excited to discover, Ruth, that she is the first person that you meet and she takes you on this journey into her world where time was something that was a, it was a commodity. And so that was one of the people that I discovered that I said had to be in the book. And not only did she have to be in the book, she had to be the first person you meet. Mm. She really captivated me as well. And especially what you said about the selling time, because I'm going, what? You can sell time? What does this all mean? That's right. <laughs> it wouldn't be a good practice right now, but back then, yes. You had another mention in there that really resonated with me for the time we're living in now. You mentioned Groundhog Day, which is relevant to me because one of my kids' birthdays happens to fall on Groundhog Day. And also that I was speaking with David White recently from the UK and mm -hmm. he didn't realize that Groundhog Day actually exists in the United States. Like he thought it was just made up for the movie Groundhog Day. <laughs> I was like, no, this this is actually something that we do here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they have holidays that we don't get, you know, bankers holidays. and things Yes. Like that. So I was curious, though, your thoughts on time in a pandemic, because I'm finding mm -hmm. Groundhog Day but I'm also finding time seeming both fast and slow. And I just don't understand any of it. My relation to time is very confusing to me now. Yeah, that's because you and I live by the clock. We had meetings at certain time. We taught classes at certain time. We had appointments. And so we were on this huge grid that everyone else followed. But now we're all separated from that grid. And so time doesn't move in a continuous. It seems to be in spurts. It, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's fast. And sometimes we don't adhere to the clock. We actually adhere to our body clock. Oh, I'm hungry now, so I'll eat. In the past, it would be, well, it's noon. I should go eat. Now it's like, no, my stomach's growling. I'm going to go eat. I'm tired. It's the middle of the day. Well, I'm going to go sleep. And before, we would just sleep at you know certain times at, at night. So in The Alchemy of Us, I talk about how timekeeping changed life. We used to be more connected to our natural cues, the position of the sun and how our body responded, You know, hunger and the like. But with the clock, we started to adhere to the clock. We would do things when the clock said it was appropriate to do things. We would leave at five instead of how else you would determine when you wanted to quit for the, for the day. So right now, here we are in the midst of this pandemic, and we're losing our sense of time because we don't have those cues. We don't have those meetings. We're not interfacing with people. So I would say that what we're doing is kind of regressing back to how life was before the clock. I could ask you a million questions about every chapter and <laughs> maybe I'll have a chance to keep having you back and we can keep talking about the book, but I, I'm, I want you to pick because it's your book, but I, I really would love to hear either about hard drives because with my background in computers, I love that chapter and all, or, or your choice, computer chips, micro. Well, you choose, yeah. you choose. Oh, okay. Let's do it. Let's do hard drives. Yeah. Okay. So hard drives. What do you want to know about hard drives? I want to know how they changed the way that we sort of interact with the world. I love your, your connection in terms of what we capture, what we see, what we share, what we discover. You know, how, how did that, how does the invention of magnetic hard drives sort of connect with or change our culture? Well, in The Alchemy of Us, in one chapter called Share, that's where the hard disk makes its appearance. And I understand that hard disks aren't sexy, <laughs> but they change the world because 
information was changed. Its shape was changed. It used to be very onerous because information was stored on punch cards. And there were so many punch cards that they were taller than the Washington Monument. And at one point, IBM International Business Machines, they made 16 billion punch cards a year. And this is before the age of sustainability. They were just like, look, this is just too much. How do we reduce all that data? And so the idea for the hard disk came from that as a way to have a smaller footprint, if you will, for information. Information became smaller and we can store more in a smaller amount of space. And as a result, it was easier for us to collect more data because it was we didn't have to worry about those mountain high piles of punch cards. And so what I say in The Alchemy of Us is that as data changed its shape and it became easier and smaller, more data could be collected. And as a result, we could store things like our favorite things like music and pictures. But our cell phones and the internet, which are linked to these banks of hard disks, could now start to collect information about us, where we're located, who we're talking to, who our friends are. And so I named that chapter Share to talk about how the ability to reduce information to a small size allowed us to share things like music. But now we're being sh shared, that is our information is being shared because our data is so easy to gather and it's so easy to collect. One of the things I treasure about your book is just how much you have avoided the people that would normally be left out of a book like this. And we spoke earlier about how many people get left out of the educational process. And as I think about us as researchers, as teachers, I know that there's still this real possibility that you mentioned you didn't use the word implicit bias, but I know that's what we were talking about. Right. But how can we as researchers, as authors of journal articles, of books, as teachers, what, what is your advice to us to not have people be left out like the ones you talk about in your book? Hmm, that's a very good question. Why do we study history or why do we share history? We're trying to teach lessons to the future generations. We're also trying to see our reflection. We're trying to gain something from the past so that we feel better about our present or can make more informed decisions about our present. That's my thinking anyway. And if we have individuals in the past that we focus on as a way to teach lessons about how to live in the present and in the future, and if they don't resemble the people who we're speaking to, they're not going to feel like the present is theirs or the future because the past wasn't theirs either. So in The Alchemy of Us, I work really hard to showcase individuals who aren't necessarily highlighted. There's uh, more women and there are more people of color highlighted in, in my book than usual books about technology. And also the people who are of European descent. I don't make them the sole genius. I show you their humanness. And I do this twofold. Well, for, first, it's more interesting. But secondly, I want people to resonate with all of the characters, whether they're the same demographic as these characters or not. And so if we can learn from the past, see our reflection, we can make decisions about our present and make better decisions about our future. So this is the importance of, of, of examining the implicit bias in who we select to highlight and to showcase. Because what we're doing is we're, tell, we're giving the message, we don't see a place for you here and we don't see a place for you in the future. And that's not right. And so I decided that in The Alchemy of Us, I was going to take a different approach. I was going to make sure that people saw their reflection just like 321 did for me. I knew that the power of reflections, just by seeing an image of an African-American girl on a television show, put me on the path to become a, becoming a scientist. That's the impact of representation. And so I was going to do everything in my power to make sure that other people felt that they saw their reflection too. 
as we think about our students, we, we want them to see themselves in us and we want them to see themselves in the things we put in our syllabi. We want them to see themselves in the videos that we show and the stories. And at least in my experience, I need to do so much of that work myself, but I also need to recognize that my students are right in front of me. And when mm. I have them share their reflections, their connections with what they're learning with their own lives, I don't have to try to correct the ways in which my growing up was very centered on whiteness that without mm-hmm. me recognizing it. I mean, it's fish and water. I didn't, I didn't know, but I don't mm-hmm. have to put all of that on me. You know, I'm close to 50 years old and that would be, you know, an awful lot to try to do entirely. It's not like that. That's the student's jobs, by the way, but it is my job to do the best I can to bring those things in, but also to invite them into a community of learning where they can make those connections for themselves and I just get to kind of have a little benefit where I become better informed about the ways in which they're being impacted by the learning and able to connect it with their own stories, their families, and their communities. So thank you for encouraging us to do that and for that advice. Thank you. Well, I think teachers are are great. I mean, all we have to do is we have to remind students that they're rock stars. Mm-hmm. Some of us get to do it just with our presence. That's great. Some of us just have to geek out in our own thing and when you do that, you give students permission to geek out in whatever they're interested in by, by being a role model. Humility is also part of the formula. So if you can just say, hey, look, I know I'm not going to get this right. That is much more powerful than, you know, take it the way I'm giving it to you, which is how I grew up. So students are very astute about how you approach them and they will resonate with how you approach them. So sure, we don't have all the answers, but if we go in with the intention that we're trying and we're open to adapting, then that's definitely going to put us in the right direction. The first time I had the honor of speaking with you, you shared about data. Uh, sorry, about <laughs> failure being data, this information. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband has quoted you saying that about 300 times or 3,000 times possibly. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's so good. It's so good because teaching is not about the quest for perfection and our students when they see us fail Mm. and we're willing to name that can be such a powerful thing, but it can be something that so many of us become fearful of. And I think that academia at large really reinforces this, that you can't admit that you've failed, that you can't share about it openly. Although what you said when we first met, that, that perhaps maybe that's not as much in the sciences. I don't know. It sort of feels like from a distance that it still, still permeates that area too. It's a burden to have to be perfect. And you protect that position by putting other people down. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> I don't think that's a good process. And so I remember in my classes when I was teaching, I realized that I was a teacher. I was also a role model for how I wanted students to consider to look at the world. So when things failed, I would try and try again. And, and they were like, you know what? You were so chill about that that I decided that when I fail, I'm just going to be chill and realize, oh, I'm learning something. I just took a different approach based on your model. Instead of saying, you know, failure equals data, I saw you doing it. And uh, I said, well, she really believes that because here she is operating with that with that kind of intention. So teaching is is also being a role model. And it's it's heavy, but it's it's very important work. Anissa, I'd love for you to circle us all the way back to the beginning of the Alchemy of Us and share about your glass blowing experience. <laughs> Well, I had been a material scientist for a long time, and I've been looking for a way to make this field, this little-known field, interesting to other people. There are books out there where they profile different materials, and I said, well, I can't do that. I have to 
find another approach. And so I'd been on a hunt for another approach. A couple of years ago, I took uh, glass blowing classes because I wanted to just do something new. I, I like to sign up for new classes every year. So this is part of my own professional development. What I did not know is that when I signed up for those classes, I was actually going to get the inspiration for this book. Now, I signed up for glass blowing classes because I was so excited to learn something new. I had seen my instructor do something amazing. He pulled glass a couple of times and he made a galloping horse. I said, this is fantastic. I want to be around this guy. <laughs> but I knew that I had to be very careful because I'm a little bit on the clumsy side because I'm you know, a little absent-minded. So I knew that that hot glass and I were not going to be friends if I, if I didn't pay attention. So I usually took a very cautious approach when I work with the glass. But there was one day that I didn't, I wasn't so safe because it was just a horrible day at work. And so when I work with the glass, I actually started making a bigger piece than I'd ever made before because I was putting all my frustration onto the glass. I had one more step. All I had to do was put it into the furnace for a short amount of time and take it out before I can remove it and put it into the area where it cooled. But I was still distracted. I was talking to my friend. And as I did, the piece was molten hot and hanging off the end of my pipe. I knew that all I needed to do was rotate the pipe and it would right itself. But it was so hot that it just kept falling on its new lower side. And so I was in a dance with this hot glass. I would turn the pipe and it would go to its new lower side. I would turn the pipe, it would go to its new lower side. And eventually the pipe was just uninterested with my limited skill. It fell to the floor and boom, there was my beautiful vase. My instructor came and he got the piece, he reattached it to my pipe, fixed it, and then eventually I put it over to the area where it would cool. But it was that instance that I realized that Glass and I were in a dance. I was shaping it, of course, because I was in a glassblowing class. But it had actually shaped me. Because when I went to that class, I was in a very bad mood. And I was actually in a pretty good mood and pretty happy about being alive. So that was the impetus for the alchemy of us. I wanted to explore how materials and humans have shaped each other over the last couple of centuries. And that glassblowing accident was the birth of the book. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I wanted to take a moment to thank today's sponsor, and that is SaneBox. SaneBox is a tool I've been using for years to help keep my email under control. It can use a Gmail email address, one from Office 365, an iCloud account, or really any email address. And you set it up, and what it does is it smartly looks at who the email's coming from, and the subject line, and it smartly categorizes them into different folders. The folders include the most common one that I use is saying later. So emails that aren't very pressing, but that I do want to take a look at later, get sorted into that folder. And they might include things like newsletters. There's a number of newsletters I really enjoy reading, but I don't want to read them during the day when I'm getting productive communication work in my email done with people that I need to get back to sooner than an email newsletter might represent. There are other kinds of really smart folders and also smart ways to manage your email. If I want to make sure I get a reply back from someone, but don't want to have to add the particular email to my task manager, I can just forward it to a seven days at sanebox.com, for example, and get a little nudge back if the person hasn't replied to me yet. The other thing I really like is the ability to not unsubscribe from an email because just in case I think it might be a nefarious party that's behind that email, I can just drag it into an 
a box that will say, I never want to hear from this person again, but it doesn't send an email back to them saying that I exist. So it kind of works nicely. There also is an easy way of unsubscribing if you think it is from a real entity, but you don't want to hear from them again. So wonderful service, sanebox.com. I thank them so much for their sponsorship of today's episode. In fact, a series of episodes, if you've been listening for a while, and they have a great offer for the teaching in higher ed community. If you head over to sanebox.com slash T-I-H-E, as in teaching in higher ed, you can get a $25 credit toward a SaneBox subscription. But even before that, you can get a free 14-day trial with no credit card required to see how quickly it can really clean up your email and make email work for you instead of you working for email. Thanks again to SaneBox for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And my first one is about someone who has shaped me. And that is you. And I want to recommend your book, The Alchemy of Us. And I don't do that for every author that I have on the show. And I have proof of all those recommendations that have been tracked that I actually I can't keep up with every book and author that comes on. But I just you've really shaped me in so many ways. And this book is going to continue to shape so many lives out there. You're shaping future scientists and current ones, you're shaping future teachers and current ones, and you're helping people see more reflections of themselves in celebrating the ways in which material science can help us understand culture and the world and the way that we are shaped. So thank you so much for this book. I also wanted to recommend an article that Chris Gilliard posted on Twitter called How Surveillance always has reinforced racism. Chris has been on the show a couple of times in the past. And of course, I I talk often about the ways in which technology reflects <laughs> reflects our our values in in good and bad ways. Um, sadly, mostly bad ways are the examples that we've talked about on the show in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to read the last line of it because I just thought it was so powerful. So she's asked about technology not being neutral that technology is biased. And the interviewer says the fact that it needs to be said just shows you how comfortable people are with even the concept of neutral. And she responds, exactly. And that requires like an entire upending of a lot of white folks' ways of seeing that whiteness isn't neutral, police aren't neutral. All of these things are framed by their histories to let go of the idea of a technology and perhaps the technology being used in the exercise of white supremacy, of misogyny or transphobia or being trans agnostic is a lot for many people to see. And then this is the part I really, really struck me. It's an easy alibi, I think, to say that the technology made me do it. So mm-hmm. this is just a great opportunity for us to reflect on if we ever feel like, and I certainly will admit to, Technology is just technology, (laughs) but I I certainly have been able to read a lot of books like the one by Kathy O'Neill, Weapons of Math Destruction. I mean, there's a lot of what goes into programming those algorithms and building that technology. So it's a wonderful reflection for us. And thank you, Chris, for posting that and introducing me to it. And I'm going to pass it over now to you, Anissa, for you to make your recommendations. Well, when, when this is over, I think we need to look at our myths and we may have to shift a lot of them. Some of them serve us, and initially they served maybe a small population because they serve as a meme, a way to to share a feeling very quickly. If I tell you that Ben Franklin and Lightning, you know everything about that story. 
you know that that's how we discovered lightning was electricity and so that myth is very useful but if we continue to use these myths we're actually pushing people away from considering sciences so we need to examine our myths and make sure that they're serving us in the way that betters all of us and not just a small and not just a small population Anissa, thank you so much for coming back to teaching in higher ed and educating us all about the alchemy of us and even more. It's just such a gift to get to talk to you again. Thank you. Thanks once again to Dr. Anissa Ramirez for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I really do hope some of you will go pick up her book and have a read and renew or continue your interest and curiosity about science. And as she mentioned in the interview, it is very approachable, very accessible for all of us. Thanks to you for listening and being a part of the teaching in higher ed community. I'm so thankful for the people who are working in solidarity together to just continually to improve and grow our capacity to facilitate learning for our students. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.